0: And let me open us in a word of uh, prayer. Our Father and our God, we worship you, we serve you, we love you, Lord. And we just want to spend this next hour or so together uh, speaking about the chapter that really gives us some insight into the heart and mind of Jesus Christ as he's preparing to go to the cross. So Lord, we pray that we could read this with empathy towards how serious this was uh, for you to go through on our behalf. and. um Lord, just all the heartbreak that you had to feel on our account. So, Lord, we want to honor you tonight uh, with uh, the sharing of your word and pray that you would bless us as you please, Lord, and uh, help us to understand more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, folks, let's uh, get into the text. Um, John 13, 1 says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, so that's a significant phrase because We've seen about three times Jesus saying his hour had not yet come. And now we see him saying that his hour had come. So that, that ticking time bomb of those phrases, my hour has not yet come, is now about to explode because his hour is now here. So Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Couple of thoughts on verse one. <clears throat> First of all, unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is approaching this description of the Last Supper differently than those guys did. They emphasize the details. They emphasize, like a reporter would, uh, here's what happened and when it happened. John is going to put you into the heart and mind of Jesus. That's why I want to read this tonight with empathy. I want us to really kind of walk in the shoes of the apostles and see what this night was like. This was a supper unlike any other supper. And so we're not, getting, um, we're not getting a detailed account of what happened. We're getting the heart here of what happened. That's what John does for us. So this verse finishes by saying he loved them to the end. That's not a chronological description saying, now's the end of his life and he loved them all the way to the end. This is much more of a depth of his love description. He's loving them to the uttermost. He's loving them as deeply as as they can be loved. So, with his divine nature, his love can be, as hymn writers have expressed and psalmists have expressed, higher than the heavens deeper than the oceans so that's the love that's going on here that he wants to show his apostles so some of you know what's coming some of you know it's the foot washing Mm -hmm. now how shocked would you be when you learn that the depth of divine love is about to be expressed and when jesus christ wants to show the depth of his divine love he washes feet think of what that must mean that servanthood of our god Now, here we're getting that we, what Jesus knows, he knows that his hour had come. So we're in his mind here. He he's thinking that he's about to depart from this world to the Father. So he knows he's leaving this world and going to the next world, where he had come from. So I know when I go back home up into the Buffalo area. There's a great excitement for me, uh, especially when people that still live there, when I live there, there's a great excitement going back as a teenager and so forth uh, to going back where I came from. Can you imagine if where I came from was heaven? How excited I'd be to go back, especially after walking this earth for a while. So Jesus has in his mind that I came from the father I'm going back to the father and his hour has come. And I want to show my apostles how much I love them. So verse 1 really sets the stage for the next 30 verses. Uh, verse 2. After and supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas's Iscariot, Simon's <laughs> son, to betray him. So Satan's already at work at this supper through Judas. Jesus have all authority now. I have all authority over the entire universe. Now, doesn't that make the foot washing even more spectacular? That with all authority, this is what he's choosing to do. Can you imagine if somebody that was strictly a man had all authority? Do you think he'd be washing feet? Okay, but that's what our God does. So um, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, there's the homegoing of him. What does he do with these thoughts in his head? I have all authority, I'm going back to my father, so I'm not gonna have issues with Pharisees and betrayals and denials and all these things. I'm not gonna have any of that anymore, it's gonna be perfect. What does he do in that situation where well, you're about to get seven action words that Jesus performs with all these thoughts in his head and with all of this love in his heart? These are the seven things that he does. It says in uh, verse four, the first thing he does, it says he rose from supper. Second thing he does is he laid aside his garments. The third thing he did was he took a towel. Fourth thing he did was he girded himself. After that, the fifth thing he did was poured water into a basin. The sixth thing he did was begin to wash the disciples' feet. And the seventh thing he did Was to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, scholars have called these seven actions the seven verbs of our salvation. Why are these the seven verbs of our salvation? Because through Isaiah's gospel and through um, Philippians chapter 2, which I'm going to go to in a moment, um, we see Jesus cosmically doing these acts that he was doing specifically at this Last Supper. So the first thing Jesus did was, it says he rose from from the table, he rose from supper. Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a picture of God seated on his throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. That's the throne that Jesus rose from to come to the earth. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. So Jesus rose from his heavenly throne just like he rose from the supper here. Then he laid aside his garment. That garment is also seen in Isaiah six. That's the train of his robe that's filling the temple. That's the heavenly look at his garment. What's the earthly look at his garment? It's the rabbinical robe that he's removing now to serve them. So this is his robe of majesty that's being laid aside. And it says he took upon he took um, a towel, this is this is equivalent to Luke chapter two, where he took upon himself humanity. Luke chapter two verses six and seven. I want to read those because I want you to get this picture. It says that so it was while they were that while they were there, the days were completed for Mary to be for Mary to um, for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. He's taking upon himself humanity here. And it says he girded himself with a towel. That's the equivalent of him girding himself with flesh. Uh, he girds himself with flesh. That's John 1.14. The word became flesh. And then mm-hmm. he pours water into a basin. This is the equivalent of him pouring out his blood for us. It's John 19.34 where they stab him in the heart to make sure he's dead and it talks about the blood pouring forth and the water pouring forth. So he poured out his blood. And in John 13, he's doing it to wash their feet. Cosmically, he's doing it to wash away our sins. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we're faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the cleansing, the washing away of our sins, of 1 John 1, 9. And then it says he wiped their feet dry. This is equivalent to Revelation 21.4, where he says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So the picture is this. In John 13, he rises from the supper. He lays aside his robe. He takes upon himself a, uh, a towel and girded himself with it. He poured out water into a basin to wash their feet and wipe them dry with the towel with which he was girded. Cosmically what he's doing, he rises from his heavenly throne. He girded himself with flesh. That's John one. He poured out his blood. That's John nineteen. To wash away our sins. That's First John one nine. And to wipe every tear from our eyes. That's Revelation twenty one four. And the humility that is required of God to do all of that is seen in Philippians chapter two, verses five through ten. Philippians chapter two, verses five through ten where amazingly, when it shows this humility of Christ in the most clear expressions, it starts, the passage starts by saying that we ought to have the same mind and attitude that Jesus had when he expresses this incredible humility. In Philippians 2, starting verse five, Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So have the same attitude. What's the attitude? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So here's somebody who is in the very form of God who doesn't promote that. He doesn't walk around saying, serve me because I'm God. Instead, he does the opposite. He says, because I'm God, I will serve you. So have that same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, So not just a regular man, that would have been incredibly condescending for him just to be a normal guy, but rather he takes the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. You say, what in the world would the king of glory become obedient to? And you would normally think he became obedient to some other man, but he doesn't become obedient to any man far more extremes as he became obedient to death. The very thing that had no hold on him whatsoever. He became obedient to death and not the type of death where you just fall asleep in your rocking chair when you're 99 years old. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient to a slow, torturous, shameful death because that's what we have earned and deserved. And he had to take that from us. Uh, and, to, and put upon put it upon himself, even the death of the cross. Therefore, and if you've ever sat under my teachings, you know how important this word is. Ask yourself, why is it there? What is it for? Because he so incredibly humbled himself, even though he's God. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Isn't? Haven't we learned that's how God operates? If you humble yourself, He'll exalt you, exalt yourself, he'll humble you, okay? And he's given him the name which is above every name. Now, what name was above every name in the Old Testament? It's the name of Yahweh. He has the Yahweh name. That's why in John eight fifty eight, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they heard the Yahweh name in that and tried to stone him to death. So he's given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus. Now, do you see how radical that is? He was given the name above every name. They would say, that's Yahweh. Now they say, yes, but it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. In other words, Jesus has equality with Yahweh, doesn't he? Okay. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So why did the father exalt him to such a high place as that? Because he greatly humbled himself. And you can find that dynamic happening all through Proverbs and many other instances. Um, it's the, yes. So, so humility um, is when God would be pleased to exalt you. When you're pleased to exalt yourself, then it's not from God, and God is pleased to humble us in that situation. All right. Uh, verse, I believe we're on verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. Doesn't life get interesting when Jesus comes to Simon Peter throughout the Gospels? Okay. So then he comes to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, before we criticize Peter, I think if we're all honest, we would be Peter at this supper. We'd be the ones to say, Lord, I know your master. I know your king. I know you are far superior to us. You should not be washing our feet. But Peter is the one that spoke up and said that. Once Jesus says, hey, you don't get it now, but you'll know later, that's when Peter should go, okay, I'll wait till later till I find out. But he doesn't. So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So now what does this impulsive Peter do when he hears the only way to have a part with Jesus is to let him wash you? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my, my hands and my head. Now that seems pretty reasonable. That seems like he's all in. But verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, what in the world's going on there now? The dynamic that I see here, now you can read five commentaries and you will probably get six or seven different opinions on this. Okay, Here's my opinion of what's happening here. And I think if you look at the doctrines of baptism, you look at the doctrines of forgiveness of sin, I think what I'm about to say fits all of that. So here's what I suggest is what Jesus is getting at with Peter. So Peter recognizes the superiority of Jesus Christ and says, this ain't right. You shouldn't be washing my feet. But then Jesus surprises him by saying, if I don't wash you, you have nothing to do with me. So Peter says, and not just my feet, but my head and my hands also. And Jesus says, you're already clean. You only need your feet washed. So what what would make Peter already clean, but only needing his feet washed? I believe he's saying, you're a baptized believer. That's the one-time washing that you don't have to keep doing over and over again, and why Jesus doesn't want to wash his head and his hands anymore, because he's baptized. He's clean. That's a one-time event. We only get baptized once, and it lasts us for a lifetime. But then he says, but you need your feet washed through this. And I believe that's referring to uh, forgiveness of sins, that even baptized believers still daily need their sins forgiven. Now, why do I think the washing of feet is forgiveness of sins? Because it's the verse that I quoted a little while ago, the first John one nine verse, which says, if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So we know that that's a daily deal. Confessing sins and being forgiven of sins is a daily deal. And I think Jesus is taking that daily forgiveness that he cleanses us of all unrighteousness on a daily basis is equivalent to the foot washing that he wants to do for them so um so why not his head in his hands because he's a baptized believer he's already clean that way but even we baptized believers sin on a daily basis and we need that our feet washed in there now After they were baptized, if you can picture them getting baptized in in the Jordan River or wherever they got baptized, when they'd come out of that, they'd put on their robe and their sandals, and they walked home, guess what is the only part of them that would be dirty? (laughs) Their feet from walking through the dirt. So they would have to wash their feet even though they just got out of the water. So I think uh, the washing of the feet is a daily reminder of... See, a lot of places institute foot washing even as a sacrament. Some places have it as a sacrament of uh, foot washing. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what's going on. Um, I think when Jesus says you're to wash one another's feet, he's talking about always forgiving one another. That's how we wash each other's feet. Um, and he says, and if I don't do it for you, then you have no part with me. Would he be that serious about forgiveness of sins? I'm gonna say absolutely he's that serious about forgiveness of sins. I'll refer you to Matthew chapter 18, which is a surprisingly strong parable from Jesus Christ about forgiving sins. I'm gonna read from Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, all the way to verse 35. Then Peter came to him and said, "'Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me "'and I forgive him?' "'Up to seven times?' Jesus said to him, I don't say up to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, because I want you to forgive 70 times seven, endlessly forgive. Let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. That's going to be his father who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now 10,000 is always a number for, not countable it's just this incredibly high number and a talent was a year's salary so imagine owing 10,000 years salary and you can't pay it back is the idea but he as he was not able to pay his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made the servant therefore fell down before him saying master have patience with me and I'll pay you all Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave the debt. Now, keep in mind that represents God. Moved with compassion over your confession of your inability to take care of your own sin. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is about a month's wage, or I'm sorry, a day's wage. So this is about three months pay, which you can pay back over time. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. This was their debtor's prison back then. So when his fellow servant saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you, Wicked servant. Now, what what's happening here? The man that was greatly forgiven a tremendous debt wouldn't forgive a lesser debt, and what did God call him? Wicked. His lack of his ability to forgive. God said, "You're wicked." Now, let me finish the parable, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as you had, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. How long would it take him to pay all that was due him? I'll never be able to pay it all. That's eternal. And what is the consequence? It says torture. You're getting a doctrine of hell there. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart, if from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, is forgiveness important? I think that speaks for itself, okay? Now, why should you forgive? Because whenever I teach this, I try to be keenly aware that there's probably at least one person saying, you have no idea what this so-and-so person did to me. And it could be rape, it could be child molestation, it could be any number of things that I have never had to experience in my entire lifetime. I'm not being unsympathetic with the depth of the pain that you, might be, you may have experienced from somebody. What I am being is this. I'm being encouraging and saying, maybe you have no idea the depth of freedom from that pain that forgiveness will offer you. And I'm not saying you have to look this person in the eye and say, I forgive you. I'm just saying even at a distance when they don't even know, Jesus says you have to forgive them from your heart. You see, God works forgiveness not for the benefit of the offender. He works forgiveness for the benefit of the offended. He wants to free your soul. Now, he's saying your basis for forgiving is this. You as a sinner need to forgive somebody else who's a <laughs> sinner. Well, but you've sinned against God also who's not a sinner. And if the one who's never sinned against you is willing to forgive you 10,000 talent debt. then he said, then that should free you to say then I can forgive the hundred denarii debts that are are against me. They're significant debts, but there's, you certainly can use them for forgiveness. And I will tell you uh, a little secret about the counseling I've done over the years. Some of the deepest, darkest pain of people um, I have seen them freed from. We worked on uh, discovering who delivered their pain to them and worked on them forgiving them. And I kid you not, I had every single one of those men broken in great sobbing and tears with letters in their hand, writing how they forgive the person that hurt them. And, and they were freed they were totally freed in front of our eyes they were freed from that night forward they every night they would tell me um one of them reached out to his dad he hadn't talked to him in years he wrote the letter he reached out to him it was great and wonderful um and uh restored relationship uh there was this great story after great story after great story um and some of these stories i wouldn't if i were watched them on tv i'd say these stories aren't even believable, but this is real life and real stories that happened to these these men and forgiveness set them free. And I want to spend time saying that because I hate that any of you walk in bondage um, over something God wants to free you from. And I hope you see through Matthew 18 and you'll see now through John 13, just how significant forgiveness is. The The thing I want you to remember most is this, you can forgive, you have the power within you to forgive great offenses because you are the recipient of great forgiveness. You are a walking model of being forgiven everything and being considered perfect when you're not. Um, it's that model in this parable where God says, you who I forgave so much, you couldn't turn around and have empathy on those who hurt, hurt you. <clears throat> So remember how much you've been forgiven and allow that to free you to be a great forgiver of sins. And remember when Jesus taught us to pray, he said this, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says, I really want you to pray that you'll receive the extent of forgiveness that you're willing to give. And when you pray the Lord's prayer, you're literally saying, whatever extent I'm forgiving to others, please forgive me that way. So if you're only a living, little forgiving or you're selectively forgiving, then you've literally asked God to do the same to you, and that, that's not good. So uh, free yourselves up as best you can. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a guess of where I am because I don't have any idea anymore. Uh, let me take a look here. I'm going to say that I'm on verse uh,
1: 13 is what I'm going to say. All right. Actually 12, right? Um,
0: 12 says, so when he being Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Do you call me teacher and Lord? And you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And again, I believe that's talking about forgiveness. He's forgiving them. They should forgive each other. Now he's saying that when moments before Judas betrays him and hours before Peter denies him. Let's think about that. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right.
1: Now, verse 18.
0: I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. There's the ego, a me in the Greek, the I am, the Yahweh name, that you may believe that I'm Yahweh is what that would sound like to them. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I used to assume that when Jesus says, one that eats bread with me lifted up his heel against me, that he was referring back to Genesis um, with the prophecy that the um, seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would strike the heel of the coming Messiah. But that analogy doesn't work because Jesus' heel crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus here is saying his adversary is lifting up his heel against him. So that doesn't fit. But what does fit from first century understanding is their understanding of what a Roman soldier would do when he has critically wounded his opponent. What he would do to show that he's conquering the enemy is he'd walk over to his critically wounded opponent and stick his foot on his neck. He would lift up his heel against him that way. And so Jesus may very well be referring that Judas is doing that. Now you would say, well, what kind of victory is Judas having over Jesus? Well, you may be surprised that there's some scholarship out there that believes that Judas had no intention of Jesus getting killed through this betrayal. What he intended was that since Jesus is not leading this insurrection to defeat the Romans like was common in first century thought, that when Messiah came, he'd overthrow the Romans and set the the Jews free. Since that was clearly not happening, Judas may have thought, if I turn him over to the Pharisees, I will force Jesus's hand to fight. And then the insurrection will begin. And that's why maybe Judas became so overwhelmed and threw the money back on the temple floor when he realized I just got him killed. He just betrayed innocent blood. So he, he may have meant one thing when another thing actually happened. And if he indeed believed that he'd be provoking Jesus to start the insurrection by turning him over to the Pharisees, then that would be an accurate picture of Judas lifting up his heel to Jesus. So that may very well fit. Now, I'm going to share a little of Psalm 41 with you because a lot, some of Psalm 41 is messianic in nature, and it's always cool to see these prophecies come fulfilled uh, in the New Testament because there's no other religion that does this. So in Psalm forty-one, uh, I think it'd be good to start in.
1: Where am I going to start here?
0: Uh, okay.
1: Why? Oh, I'm in Isaiah.
0: I always do that. I always put Isaiah when I mean Psalms. All right, Psalm forty-one, starting in verse five. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is saying that this last supper is gonna fulfill that Psalm there. His own familiar friend in whom I trusted. And if you ask yourself, when did Jesus ever trust Judas? Number one, he called him to be one of the 12, and number two, he called them to be in charge of the money, didn't he? I don't know of anybody that put somebody in charge of the money that didn't trust that person. So um this is the fulfillment of psalm 41 here all right now verse
1: 21
0: when jesus had said these things he was troubled in spirit and testified and said most assuredly i say to thee one of you will betray me now again Think of what that would sound like to you if you were sitting at this supper table. It's hard enough for you to hear Jesus talk about his impending arrest and death. That was never received well by the apostles. But now you're hearing that one of you sitting at the table will initiate it, that you will be his betrayer. Then The disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke.
1: to him to ask who it was of whom he
0: spoke then leaning back on jesus's breast he said to him lord who is it now when i finish this chapter i'm going to show you a picture of the last supper painting and talk about that that's that's uh, leonardo da vinci's um capturing this very moment in that last supper painting and The very moment he's capturing is is when the apostles are asking this very question, Lord, who is it? In fact, I think it's Matthew or Mark's gospel says, they actually are saying, Lord, is it I? They're all asking, is it gonna be me who betrays you? Now, you'll see some of the seating arrangement at that last supper, but of course, Da Vinci doesn't know, nor do any of us know exactly who sat where. But we know that John was leaning in Jesus' bosom. Now. You probably heard it said that they all sat on a very low table and reclined on one elbow as they ate with the other arm. And that's true, but they didn't do that every meal. They did that more on special occasions. A lot of times they'd hesitate to eat that way because it was a Roman custom and they didn't like imitating the Romans too much. But on special occasions like this would be, uh, they would do that for the intimacy of it. So we know that John's leaning on his bosom but we don't know who's on the other side of Jesus. But what you're gonna read right now is that when Jesus answers John, he's gonna say, it's the one whom I dip the bread with. And scholars believe that only John hears that. It's not like all 12 hear that. Because remember when Judas leaves, they don't know why he's leaving. So only John hears the response, it's the one whom I dip my bread with. Now, who would be able to dip bread with Jesus? It's got to be somebody sitting next to him, or at the very worst, one person away. So it's very likely Judas is immediately on the other side of Jesus. And if he is, remember the two apostles, James and John, when they said, one of us wants to sit at your right and one at your left in the kingdom? Those are places of honor, both sitting to the right and to the left. We know John has one of those spots, but it's likely Can't be conclusive on it, but it's likely Judas is the other in a position of honor at this table. And he just had his feet washed by Jesus Christ, didn't he? And he's very likely sitting at the place of honor because he has to be able to reach the same dishes Jesus to dip in. So it's amazing to me the depth of the opportunity and the compassion that Jesus has that he would even seat Judas after washing his feet in a place of honor. That really shows us that we are accountable for our sin. God is there to really give us every opportunity to be blessed.
1: Verse 26.
0: Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And again, I would personally think only John heard that answer. Because if Judas heard it, I wouldn't think he would dip at that moment. That'd be kind of silly. And if everybody heard it, it'd be kind of silly to dip when he just said that. And having dipped the bread, he gave it He gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So now we're at a moment where you have Satan in Judas making him Satan incarnate. He's Satan in the flesh now. And Jesus is God in the flesh. So can you imagine this moment? You have Satan in the flesh and Jesus in the flesh sharing a piece of bread together. Isn't that remarkable? They're sharing a piece of bread together and within 24 hours, both of them will be hanging from trees. So what's the difference then between Jesus and Judas, between good and evil, if they're both in this moment sharing a piece of bread and within 24 hours, both hanging on trees? You have probably already anticipated the answer that only one of them will get up again. That's what makes the difference is the resurrection. Now, I'm gonna give you an analogy on that that's very much outdated and I know it's outdated because now when I say it to my teenage students, they have no idea the movie reference anymore. And it's from Rocky II. Can you imagine I teach people who have no idea who Rocky is? They don't know who Rocky is. It's amazing to me. There's this very slow motion count to 10 That the referee is looking at Rocky and he's looking at Apollo and he's slowly counting all the way up to 10. And right at the count of 10, Apollo falls down, Rocky rises up, they raise his hand up in the air and he's the champion. That's how I see this scene. They're sharing a piece of bread together. It's the ultimate conflict between good and evil and they both are hanging in trees within 24 hours. Yet one of them gets up again and that makes
1: all the difference.
0: All right, so verse 27. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And I can't imagine anybody else heard that because they don't understand what's going on. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Now, if you've been with me for any length of time, hopefully I've taught you about chiastic patterns. What's happening here is a is, is kind of a neat picture. And way back in John chapter 3, when Jesus meets Nicodemus for the first time, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. That means it's dark and Jesus is the light of the world. And Nicodemus goes from darkness to light in John chapter three. It's kind of this introduction of light into this dark world. And Nicodemus gets to experience that in John three, and we are told that he came at night. And then we know he accepted Jesus's testimony. And so he comes into the light. Now, when does that light end? Well, a couple chapters ago, we heard Jesus say, while I am with you, I am the light of the world. And I have to work while it's light because there's 12 hours of daylight. We work when it's daylight. I'm light. So you have to work while I'm here. I have to do things while I'm here. So when does that light end? Well, now we get this this um, statement of, and it was night. Now the darkness starts again. And what's going to happen from this point forward? It's going to be all betrayals, arrests, beatings, crucifixions until... The sun rises on the first Easter morning, and the light begins again. So now we enter into the darkness again. It was night. Verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. You see what he sees when Judas goes out to betray him? He doesn't see in the first moment, he doesn't see that arrest and suffering and, and lies and mock trials and illegal trials are going to happen. He sees that he's going to be glorified through people like you and me for all of human history all over the world. He's going to be glorified. He's, the joy set before him, he endorsed the cross. So Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children. Now remember, his betrayer and his denier are sitting right in front of him. And he still has the heart to say little children. Actually, Judas is gone. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Now, the, the simple command to love one another is not a new command. You'll see that in Deuteronomy where God commands us to love one another. So what makes this command new? Jesus says, what makes it new is, as I have loved you, you're to love one another. So now we need to investigate what is this love that Jesus had for them that we're to be imitating. And that love is sacrificial love. That love is being willing to lay down your life for somebody that he taught. He'll teach again in John 15 when we get there in a couple of weeks. So as I have loved you, you're to love one another. And Then he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one for another, remember, no matter what we're engaged in, we're to be identified and known. Um,
1: Francis Schaeffer said
0: that this is the mark of a Christian. This is what marks you out is your love for one another. Since we are created in God's image, then it's pretty telling that since he's a God of love, he'll say, you'll be known to be mine by your love. So it's identifying God. We identify God to other people by being loving. And as his image bearers, that points to them that he's a God of love. Well, if you're so loving and you're in his image, then therefore he must be loving. So his love will come to them through us until they form relationship and they can follow him independently. But what marks out the Christian more than any other thing is imitating Christ's love for people. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And that is how our chapter ends. You know, in Proverbs uh, chapter 11, verse two, it says when pride comes, remember this has been Peter's problem is, um, I'll even lay down my life for your sake, Lord. When pride comes, then comes shame, says Proverbs 11, 2. But with the humble is wisdom. And 2,000 years of hindsight, so this isn't really fair of me to say, but again, I said it earlier, Peter, I'll say it one more time. When Jesus says to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but, you'll, but you shall follow me afterward, Because of who Jesus is, that's where we just go, okay, I don't understand, but okay. Um, Peter gets into deeper and deeper water when he keeps pushing that. And what I would say to to you guys and to me is the Lord has spoken many things into our lives, okay? A lot of the things that we try to form opinions on, we really don't have a right to our opinion on because God has already spoken on that thing. And that's where we need to go, that's enough. God has spoken. Because if I give an opinion that's different from what he has spoken, I have no chance of being right there. I will always be wrong when I oppose God and the opinion that he's put on something. And that's not easy. It's not easy to uphold that standard in today's society. But the rougher society gets against God does not give us any freedom in conforming to that. We've got to hold to God's standards on each and everything. Um. Otherwise, we get ourselves in deeper water, like Peter got himself in deeper water. All right, so this kind of leaves, um, in the and it kind of leaves you like TV shows like to leave you, like where you're like, no, don't end now. I want to know what's next. But that's how we're going to end it, um, with with Jesus saying to Peter, before this night is even over, as you just proclaimed your loyalty even unto death to me, uh, we won't even get to mourning when the rooster crows before you'll deny knowing me three times. So um very difficult way to end that supper for Peter. So uh what I want to do now, John, can you share that screen? I want to take a look at this last supper painting real quick and kind of tell you and show you. Um yeah. do you see what I see? There's like yeah. one picture right in the middle.
1: Yeah. No, I, I see uh, A lady's head right on where Jesus's head should be. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Because I got to show some details here. All right. So uh, one of the things I want to do with this Last Supper painting, as I said earlier, this is the very moment that Da Vinci is capturing is the moment we saw where all the apostles are asking each other, is it I, Lord? That's why they look so agitated right now. They just heard a betrayal will happen and they're all agitated about that. Now, if you look at the ceiling up here and you look at the floor and the lines on the ceiling, the lines on the floor, uh, you'll notice that Jesus is centered under and above the center lines there. He's very much centered under the ceiling and the floor. If you look at the four legs of the table, you'll see Jesus is centered between the two center legs. If you look at the three windows in the back, you'll see Jesus is centered in the center window, centered under the arch over the center window. If you look at the walls on the side, you see they're kind of caving in quickly, more, it looks almost unnatural. And what Da Vinci is trying to do is to draw your eye to the center. He's always trying to draw your eye to the center of this picture uh, by centering Jesus in the middle of everything. And if you look at the apostles, each and every one of them is either gesturing towards Christ or looking towards Christ, but something about that apostle is having your eye want to go back to the center where Jesus is, and certainly the colorful robe of Christ draws your eye to the center. And all, and uh, so one of the thoughts Da Vinci is giving in this painting is he makes Jesus the center of everything in this painting, and what should we? think about when we look at this painting for our lives, that Jesus ought to be the center of my life. Jesus ought to be the very, very center of my life, the primacy of my life, the main person in my life, above all others, uh, is one of the thoughts that we're to to have devotionally when we look at this painting. The other one is uh, a bit more fascinating, a bit more complicated. And it has to do with, a little bit with uh, uh, Aristotle helps us a little with this because Aristotle had a principle called the ultimate particular. So ultimate, you know, that means main, major point, the ultimate and particular means a, a great detail. So what's the most important detail of this picture, the ultimate particular? Well, with da Vinci's emphasis on the center, The ultimate particular of this painting is in the precise center of this painting. And when I have my students guess about what's the precise center that Da Vinci is trying to highlight in this painting, they'll often name different things about Jesus, Um, his face or his robe or his two hands are spread out. Maybe the middle of that is is, um, the center. Some will say his heart must be at the center of the painting. And it's not any of those. You gotta think of the moment that Da Vinci's capturing here. The moment he announces his betra- Jesus announces his betrayal and the agitation of the apostles asking which one of them it, it will be. And Da Vinci, of course, paints the apostle John to Jesus's right, And he paints them very feminine looking because he's the apostle whom Jesus loved. So, of course, guys like Stephen Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code book and movie, they take stuff like that and say Jesus was married to Mary and that's Mary by his side there. And that's so absurd because the Gospels literally tell us that John is right next to him. Uh, And it's just the 12 apostles and Mary's not there. So it's just absurd what people do with these, these things. But anyways. And it also says that Peter whispered into John's ear, ask him which one of us it is. And there you see Peter with his hand on John's shoulder, whispering in his ear, ask him which one of us it is. Now, the question is, which one is Judas?
1: Well, Judas is right next to
0: Peter there. And he's painted just a little bit darker to show that he's the one that walks in the shadows and that leaves at night. Um, He's gazing at Christ, and he's actually gazing at the ultimate particular of the painting, which I haven't revealed yet. He's gazing right at the ultimate particular. And some of the things that da Vinci used to show that this was Judas was you can see in his hand that's on the table there the money bag. Uh, The money bag that he would have... Uh, eventually, he's the treasurer, so he would keep the money bag right there. Peter's hand is right at the back of Judas, and he has a dinner knife in the back of his hand, and it's at Judas's back to show which guy is the backstabber of the group. Now, the ultimate particular is the precise center of this painting, and Judas is gazing straight at it. And if you notice, Da Vinci painted Jesus' face slightly turned to his left and the reason he painted him that way is because it's it's exposing his right cheek his right cheek is the ultimate particular of the painting the precise center of the painting because it's the point of Jesus's betrayal it's the cheek that Judas will kiss when he betrays Jesus so that's what makes this painting so masterful whether you're looking at the ceiling or the floor, the apostles or the walls or the windows or the arch, whatever you're looking at, your eye is naturally drawn, especially through Judas' gaze to the ultimate particular of the painting, which is the cheek of Christ, the point of his betrayal at the moment that he announces his betrayal. So it's really kind of wonderful. Uh, I, I, I have to try to remember what artist painted another version of The Last Supper, because you know these can't be totally accurate because nobody eats dinner on one side of the table. Nobody gets a rectangular table and 12 people jam on one side of it. Uh, of course they would surround the table completely and again they'd probably be uh, closer to the floor than this. But another artist's depiction and I really got to remember this guy's name, but he does something wonderful with his Last Supper painting. He actually puts a dog underneath the table eating crumbs that were dropped on the floor. And the reason he does that, he puts a dog in the painting, is because they consider Gentiles to be dogs. If you remember the Syrophoenician woman who came to have Jesus heal heal her child, and Jesus said that he only came to the lost sheep of Israel, and she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus was so happy with that response that he healed uh, her child. Well, that's what that version of the last supper painting is depicting is the dogs eating the crumbs from the master's table, meaning that what Jesus is doing uh, at this last supper, which is, which is uh, issuing in a new covenant in his flesh and in his blood, that that will be for the Gentiles also. And that's what that dog under the table represents, that we get to have those crumbs uh, from the master's table. And it's pretty wonderful. Okay, so let me close us in a word of prayer. If uh, you could take that away, that'd be great. Um, Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you that we can even participate in sharing of your your supper, Lord, uh, your broken body and your shed blood every time we take communion together. And Lord, you ask us that every time we do that, we should remember you whenever we break bread together. So Lord, we just want to take this time as we've read this chapter to remember that you're a great savior, that you've done remarkable things on our behalf and for our benefit. And Lord, I pray that hearing these words tonight would encourage our hearts to follow you better, to love you better, to walk
1: with you more closely, that we would glorify you in
0: all that we say and do each and every day. God, we ask that you would continue to forgive us our sins because they are many. And we lay them at your feet, Lord, of the cross. And thank you that you cleanse us from them. And we celebrate you
1: now in Jesus' name. Amen.